Welcome back to Solar Speaks. I'm your host, Frank Andorka, and we are going to talk about one of the hot topics in the industry, the new fire regulations that are uh, coming into the solar world right now and are causing installers no end of headaches uh, as they try to figure out what's, what's coming. So I decided to get two of the people involved in um, screwing up the industry with these new fire safety regulations and making everybody pant, running around in a panic, um, to help calm that panic by explaining exactly what the, uh, why we're doing it and uh, how it's going to help the industry. Um, I've, I've got Mark Geis, uh, Vice President of Reliability and Compliance from Panel Claw, and Jeff Spees, uh, who is the Senior Director of Policy for Quick Mount PV and the Secretary of NABSEP. Good morning, guys. Morning, Frank. Hi, Frank. How are you? So you're responsible for this hell, huh? Well, I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a uh, 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 informed bystander. I, I haven't been involved in drafting any of the language. Mark's been more involved, but because of my involvement in UL 2703, and uh, I've become educated and helped to try to educate other folks in the industry. So, Mark, what's your involvement in making these regulations that apparently have everybody running around with their hair on fire. Oh, well, as, uh, Frank, uh, similar to Jeff, I've, um, I've been on the technical panel, the STP for 2703. Um, so we've, we've brought all those, the fire rules that have been created into that, into that standard as well. Um, actually, I led that subgroup that was responsible for that. Um, but as well, I have been involved um, in, the, in a, a bigger interdisciplinary group made up of people from 1703, 2703, um, roofing industry, um, fire um, people on really over the past few years crafting um, the rules around um, the, these new ratings that will have to go into effect. Um, so, let's, so let's start talking about the regulations and why they're important so you can put out some of the wildfires that have... Okay, that's, I promise, that's my last fire joke. Um, that are springing up around the industry. I know there are a lot of installers concerned about them. Um, we've had a healthy debate, as you guys know, uh, on Solar Power World Online because you guys participated in it. Can you outline exactly what the new regulations are designed to do and how they are going to to help the industry move forward? Um, Frank, this is Mark. Uh, what I, if you go really far back, actually before my time, I think, um, some testing and observations were made that sort of led to the conclusion that if you had a highly rated roof, maybe a Class A roof, and you put on it at the time would have been a Class A rated module, you could put those together on a roof and then perform the similar testing, and it would be and the results were horrible. So the realization of a PV system is just more than a, a component of a module. And that when that's combined in a way that product is built on a roof, either a commercial roof or a residential roof, that the fire characteristics change in a way that's not reflected in either of the individual components of the roof or the modules, their own class rating as components. So those really, that began the work, began the work of trying to develop, you know, a way to test as a system. So it's together a roof. And a, and a module with a mounting system in use to, to, to really understand how to um, make that fire behavior acceptable. 
And, and if I could uh, just mention that uh, this really relates to the concept of a thermal chimney effect. Obviously, if you have an array that's spaced off the roof, there's a certain amount of air that's drawn between the array and the roof, and that can accelerate the spread of flame. So that's what caused building officials to question the concept of rating a module by itself and rating the roof by itself. It's the combination of the module and the roof that really influence how quickly flame spreads on that roof. So that's what's precipitated this change to the fire test, which California is mandating coming up here on January 1st. Right. So, so as a result of all that new data, then IBC 2012 was crafted in a way to refer to a PD system, and that really led to the need for standards and testing certifications to reflect testing as a system. And then that has you know, precipitated to now the standards reflecting that and those going into effect um, at the beginning of next year. Why on earth weren't we testing as a system before? That just seems logical to me. What was the rationale behind not, uh, not testing them as a system from the beginning? Well, realize that uh, PV is a relatively new technology, at least in as a mainstream form of electric power generation. And as a result, the, the building officials in the U.S. really didn't have the visibility on PV installations at all. But in recent years, in the past two to three years, in many building departments in Hawaii, California, Arizona, PV installations are representing one of the most common, if not the most common, uh, uh, permit that they're issuing. So they're, they're starting to pay attention to this and question things that have not previously been questioned. Who's doing the testing? I know, I, I saw that uh, TUV is doing a panel on it at SPI, um, and I actually watched last year at SPI, um, I went out to the UL lab and I saw them set a panel on fire. Uh, do, does UL have a test for that? Uh, I mean, who else is doing it other than TUV, I guess is the question. So the testing can be done by any nationally recognized testing lab. Um, and then, so there's a subgroup of those. So that would be like ETL, um, TUV, TUV, UL, CSA. And there's a subgroup of those, including the ones I just mentioned, that have really been involved in, in module testing generally. So it's the same labs that have been doing um, the certification of modules, PV modules, to get their own listing, UL listing, that are are now involved in doing the part of that testing, the fire testing as well. And they all have the, the proper equipment that's needed and, and perform the test in the same way. Were they involved in, in, in any way in putting together the, regula the new regulations? Yeah, and it's important to differentiate between UL, which is a, definitely one of the nationally recognized test labs, and the UL standard technical panel, which develops the standard. So the fire testing requirements were developed by the UL 1703 standards technical panel. I, that's not one I serve on, and Mark, I don't think you're on STP 1703. We're on 2703 for the, the assembly of the panel and the ranking system. So 1703, it has dozens of subject matter experts that contribute to the development of these rules. And on that standards technical panel, there are a few seats that are uh, occupied by people that work for the test labs like TUV and, and uh, ETL or Intertech and, and, uh, and UL uh, test labs also participates in those standard technical panel, but they're a minority. The majority of the members on the standard technical panel that wrote these rules 
come from industry, they're code experts, they're building officials, so it's a broad cross-section of manufacturers, uh, people that actually do this work as installation companies, uh, inspector groups, uh, and building officials. So, so it, these guidelines are not written by a handful of people, they're written by quite a few people or overseen by at least by a, a lot of people. But the um, but I would say that the the aspect of the testing, which is really the details of how it's set up and and the parameters of the machinery and the equipment, that you know the various labs do have a voice, have had a voice in um, in fine tuning that, and I think that's ongoing. Where now that people are doing testing and there's some history now, a little bit of history, that now the the top labs are getting together and saying, you know, let's 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 change it to, to do this or let's fine-tune the exact procedures so that it will be more consistent and, um, you know, improve upon it for the future. Well, you know I have to ask this question. Is Quick Mount PV and uh, Panel Claw, are they part of the, are, are they fire-tested? Are they, can, can people put modules on your systems and qual and uh, take this, make this okay? Yeah, yeah, so we are, Jeff will speak for himself, but we are, Panel Claw does, has gone through testing. We have a listing um, for class class A fire resistance, fire rating, um, and it's with. We'll get into this, I think, a little bit later. But uh, module typing, it's for a, a few specific module types that can be now mounted with our system um, and, and be in compliance with the requirement. And likewise, Quick Mount PV for its new Quick Rack rail-free mounting system has gone through fire testing with UL, actually. And we were able to get a Class A fire rating in a similar way with a specific module type. And it is important to appreciate for our core business, which is our mounts, which are used with many racking manufacturers' products. For the moment, the mount isn't specifically addressed in this fire testing it's independent of the mounts with a couple exceptions, but for most racking companies, they won't specify the mount, and the, the fire testing doesn't consider the mount, again, with a couple exceptions. Who are, the, who are the other racking companies other than you guys who are either listed or are going to be listed? Is it all of them? I would, I would say not all of them. Um, you know, mo most of them are, are in various stages of it. I think the ones you hear about day-to-day... Are, are out there or had are you know have been testing or are done now there's a handful of as far as I know there's a handful of racking companies both for low slope and steep slope that have gone through and have um, various listings so it's yes, there's definitely awareness out there at this point people are are you know going through it and and making plans and trying to um, you know accomplish their goals before th this really kicks in yeah, I could say that the two largest racking manufacturers that where our mounts are used, they, they one has already completed their first round of testing and has a Class A fire rated product. The other is going through testing right now, uh, and uh, I, I know at least one of those two. They're again they're being generic on their view of the mount just to give flexibility to installers. Uh, the, the expectation is by January first there will be many many options that will be Class A fire rated for California installers. And my prediction is that the racking manufacturers that don't yet have fire rating will rush to get it done after the first of the year because building departments in California and eventually elsewhere will start requiring it. The, um, I, I'm looking at the article, the uh, letter that you, 
again, we had a big debate on this issue, as you guys know, on, on our website, uh, solarpowerworldonline.com. And in the <clears throat> letter, you were, were responding to another article. Um, the, the companies you list are Zep, Sunlink, Snap and Rack, and of course, QuickMount PV. We can add Panel Claw to the mix now. And presumably the other companies out there are going to, to as you said, uh, Jeff, rush to get this done sooner rather than later because otherwise um, they're they're going to have a hard time doing business in uh, what, of course, is the biggest one of the biggest markets, if not the well, it's the biggest market in the United States, California. Can I follow up on the California question for a second? Um, we've heard, and you can tell me if I'm if this rumors off off base that there are municipalities in California already enforcing these new regulations before they've even become official. And I know I've heard back from installers who are a little bit confused and a little bit wary, especially those who, who operate multiple municipalities because the regulations are so different um, depending on whether the municipality is using these new regs or not. What are you, what are you guys hearing about that? Um, and can you, would you mind addressing that issue, especially for my friends in California who are doing the installations? I'm not aware of many jurisdictions yet that are mandating this because the California Fire Marshal this year actually put a state in the implementation of this requirement until January 1st, 2015. So there, if for some reason there's any jurisdiction today with a permit that's being applied for that's mandating it, it's not being done under the guise of the, Cal the California state requirement. That They were very clear in saying, hey, we know that these companies haven't finished fire testing yet. They'll have that in time, but we're going to give them until January 1st. So some jurisdictions may opt to be difficult and say, uh-uh, we want it today. And, and that's their prerogative, but the, it's not a mandate in California until January 1st of 2015. Right, but if you're an installer, Jeff, how do you, how do you deal with because as I said, I've heard it from multiple installers. How do you deal with that difference in? I mean, you could be doing a, a an installation in one city and then move ten or ten minutes up the road or twenty minutes up the road, and that municipality has different regulations because they're either, you know, they're they're enforcing the new rules. How, what advice would you have for installers who are trying to deal with that? Well, if an installer's not already used to different jurisdictions having different rules, they must not have been working in the solar industry very long. This is the norm, not the exception. So I would just say you better get used to that. But the better explanation is probably go to the California State Fire Marshal's website, download the uh, notice that explains the stay and implementation and the logic behind it, and use that with the building department to attempt to get your system approved today if it doesn't yet have a fire rating. Come January 1st, that's not an option. If a building department says you must have a fire-rated system, the fundamental reality is you must have a fire-rated system, whether or not you like it. And I'm not the one that makes these rules, but I'm helping to try to prepare people. So if you act today, the likelihood is you'll have minimal problems. But people who fail to act today, quite honestly, might see permits denied as of January 1st. And I don't, I don't mean to be difficult. This is, this is one of the things that, that has fascinated me about this conversation. Um, would, would, it, would you give the advice, either of you give the advice to installers to start installing to the regulations now in anticipation of what's going to happen on January 1st? And also, 
are the systems that are already installed, are they going to be grandfathered in under the, the mandate? Yeah, as far as I know, I th there will be grandfathering. It will be, as of January 1st, any new permits issued will have to, dem you know, will be in, have to be in compliance. So installers that are working on projects now, I mean, people are working on projects now that probably won't be built till 2015. So those are the ones that really they have to start working on, making sure that when they line, I guess the biggest thing is finding out what, Exactly what class is required for each project, whether it's A, B, or C. Then f ensuring that through communication with the module manufacturer and the racking manufacturer, ensuring that the system that they are going to bid with and eventually install has that rating, the proper rating, um, to be in compliance. So that, you know, the key thing is for s systems that are going to go through AHJs and be permitted as of January 1st, the assumption will be they will have to be in compliance and have to have the proper certifications accompanying them. Well, the racking companies that, that are getting their fire ratings are the ones that are out now. Uh, do they have an, some sort of an advantage moving into January 1st, in your opinion? I, I would guess so, yeah. Again, as of January 1st, it, it, one thing that's important to appreciate is that you won't see immediate enforcement of this requirement by 100% of all jurisdictions in California, despite the fact that they're obligated to do so by the order of the state fire marshal. It's going to be a month's worth of jurisdictions who wake up to this and ones that eventually catch on to it because everybody around them is doing it. So what you'll likely see is that certain bigger jurisdictions that are more informed will start to mandate this January 1st. I would say that that would include places like Oakland, where they've had a Class A fire rating on all roofs for many years because of the Oakland firestorm back in 91. So, you know, Oakland's likely to mandate this immediately on January 1st. You might find some of the surrounding areas take several more months to catch on to this but, you know, I would say that those companies that don't have a system as of, as of January 1st will find installers forced to find an alternative system. I, I, hate, to, I hate to keep harping on this. As, as an installer, let's, okay, so we're, let's move ahead to January 1st, 2015 now. Yep. So I'm installing in Oakland, and then I go to a suburb that, as Jeff said, may not have woken up to the fact that they need to have these, these Class A regulations now. So the, the question is, if I'm an installer and I install in Oakland and they're requiring me this new, these, to follow these new regulations, and I go to permit something in another, and again, within the context of it's now 2015, and I go to another jurisdiction that because they haven't woken up to the fact that this is now a fire marshal requirement, and I permit something there that doesn't fall into the fire marshal mandated um, fire regulations, do I open myself up to a liability if, a, let's just say, a fire happens in that other jurisdiction, um, do, do I open myself up to liability in lawsuits because the AHJ doesn't, have, you know, not awake enough to realize that they've got to do this? And that's an interesting question. It really gets into the legal arena. What I would say is this. The California Building Code has clearly called out the requirement for a system that has been tested, listed, and identified 
uh, under the UL 1703 fire test. Uh, so it is a fundamental requirement in the California Building Code. Now, there's a lot of aspects of the California Building Code, including waterproofing, that many jurisdictions do not look for and enforce. So interestingly, in my opinion, although I'm not a lawyer, I think that installers that don't follow the code do have the potential of being legally liable if a PV system were to catch on fire and it didn't match a Class A fire rating because that's what the jurisdiction requires for that home. Mark, you got any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that's a, that is a very interesting question. I, I don't I, I don't know if I can uh, make a, a, a statement either way. I think generally if things get permitted, um, you know, then, then that that's the responsibility of that is on the HJ of allowing that to be put on, in my opinion. But but if you don't follow code, it, you are not in compliance with what the legal building requirements are. Code are legally enforceable, even if the local jurisdiction doesn't notice it or catch it. So it is an interesting yeah, legal question, question that we probably aren't qualified to answer, Frank. But at the very sure. minimum, it opens up liability that installers would probably be best not to have. Yeah, no, I got that. I, well, I totally agree with you. I think they ought to be installing to the code no matter what the AHJ says. Yeah. I think they ought to, it, it seems to me that's the advice I'd give them is don't take any chances. If the, well, AH, if the I, AH, oh, go ahead, sorry. I, was saying, I think there's also a risk because you could be, you could have assembled and put together a system, spec'd out a system, and you're ready to go, and you're, you're waiting for your final permit, and then, and then you may get a pushback. Right. And then that—that's what adds time to system, to projects these days. Is just getting pushbacks from the HJs and having to, to go through hoops to change them. So you're much better, much less risky to come out of the gate with systems that are designed in compliance, so that you don't have to second guess which AHJ is is um, paying attention to it or not paying attention to it, or in, in midstream they may pay attention to it. Um, Right, you, so the, the, the you're margin, much better off, I think, assuming the need for compliance. Yeah, the, the margins are tight enough for most installers out there. I, they can't really afford to be taking a chance that, A, they're going to get sued, or B, the AHA is going to come back and insist that they rip out a system. Um, and that's the reason I asked about the grandfathering, too, because I, what I, the nightmare I could see happening is... Well, now this is a mandate. You'd have to rip off everything that you've installed up to now and reinstall right. it, which would be a huge boom for the industry in California, but not real good for the homeowners sure. and and not great for the installers either. Um, so let's uh, let's move on to one other aspect of this that I think is important, and we've written about this before. This is a, some of this is coming from a firefighter safety perspective. And I, I wanted to, to get a sense from you guys as to what, how this helps firefighters and why it was determined that that was important to um, pay attention to. I, I mean, I think to me it gets back to the, the behavior that was observed when, when systems were put together um, as opposed to you know, the classification alone. So there's an expectation if you have a Class A roof and it's required in this area that may be a wildlife area or near there, that if there's a fire in a, on the eve of a roof, it's going to climb at a certain rate. So the firefighters expect that. So now if you have a system where there's some chimney effect 
behavior happening. The fire could accelerate, you know, at 10x or something. You know, I've really seen how scary um, that impact. You know, the chimney effect has that impact where you basically in the, in the gap between the roof and the modules, it it just pulls up the fire right through right up the roof and it burns much faster. So the firemen are at much higher risk of being hurt in that case. So the view was if we can ensure that this, as a system it behaves in the same way as if the roof is there alone, then then the the expectation of how it's going to burn goes back to what really should have been what should be originally, and then um, fire teams firemen can now predict um, what will happen up on the roof. Now, do you, both of you have referenced the chimney effect. Can you? Tell me what that is, because I, I sort of think I have an idea, but I want to make sure that everybody else understands it and that I understand it correctly. Well, it's, it's an interesting double-edged sword. What you typically desire in a rooftop-mounted PV system is a, is a space between the bottom of the modules and the top of the roof of several inches or more. And the benefit of that is that that cool air is drawn in from the bottom of the array and goes up and exits the top of the array and carries any heat that are generated on the modules out with it. So that is a what we, we call, you know, ventilation or your gap. Well, in the case of a fire, obviously the natural effect of drawing air at the bottom of the array and exiting at the top helps potentially accelerate the, this rate that fire spreads because that flame now comes up to the array, gets sucked in that bottom edge, and now is fed with that oxygen that's being pumped through that array in the thermal chimney. So many PV systems are introducing the concept of a leading edge deflector, or sometimes called a skirt or a shield, at the front to minimize that gap to right. slow down the potential of that air to be drawn through. Yeah, so it's the responsibility of the, of the of, you know, Primarily, it will be the raffling companies to create what Jeff described, some kind of shield or some kind of some method. Because what you want, you can't. You want to prevent that chimney effect from happening. So you ha something has to be done in order to be in compliance. As opposed to previously, nothing really had to be done. So systems are be had been built and are being built with that gap. That's um, you know potentially more harmful. Would a mesh help? I mean, you guys are the roof of the are the racking experts. Would a would a, a mesh type barrier help? Because I think you well, you tell me. I think you still want that the ability for air to move through there underneath the PV to, as Jeff was talking about, pull the heat that that is generated by the modules away. Um, so I I'm wondering if a mesh works because. It's still let air through, but it wouldn't be so much air that you drag the fire up. Right. Yeah, so I called it a double-edged sword because, uh, on the one hand, the leading-edge deflector minimizes the spread of flame. On the other hand, the leading-edge deflector cuts down on the airflow, and if you put mesh there, it doesn't cut down on the airflow, so unfortunately it's going to not help for spread of flame. So what we don't know is what that magic number is. What is the the, the uh, gap that would be created by the skirt that would allow you to achieve a Class A fire rating, right. but still let enough air through to cool your modules. And sadly, there's relatively little testing I've ever seen conducted in the industry as to what sufficient thermal venting needs to be. But what I'll say is that the California Solar Initiative, when they were giving out incentives, 
If you were over three inches off the roof, you got 95% of the available incentive. To get to 100%, you had to be six inches off the roof. But if you went under three inches, you, they dinged you considerably on the incentive because they knew that the modules would run hotter, wouldn't live as long, and wouldn't produce as many kilowatt hours over their life. So that adds another whole uh, aspect of this debate about the fire regulations because if you start putting barriers in there to stop the spread of the flame, you know, that's going to hurt people with the incentives. At least it sounds like from what you're saying, Jeff, they were already dinging people for not having their panels high enough. And you know. Now, that was when we had incentives, Frank. That, 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 that isn't the case any longer. So what I'm saying is that there's not good data yet available in the industry. I've seen various tests that have been performed, and I will say it's my professional opinion that it's desirable to have at least three inches of space from the top of the roof to the underside of the modules. What I don't know yet is what impact that leading-edge deflector might have on the module temperature uh, every day, and it's not overly difficult data to get. It's just we haven't seen anybody take the effort yet to get that data in any industry-recognized standard method. You think that's coming? I certainly hope so, and if I can't find anybody else to do it, I'm going to go out on my roof right behind my office with some cardboard and block okay. the airflow of my array on half of it and see what it does to the temps. But, you know, that's an anecdotal piece of information right. that you can't use for the masses, and, and we do need, quite honestly, testing in this area badly. All right, I got one more question for you since the Solar Speaks podcast is on iTunes, um, and so anybody can get it, and that means some consumers are going to get it. Listening to this conversation and listening to the concerns and the new regulations, there may be some people who incorrectly get the impression that somehow solar arrays are a fire hazard to their home, and if they're you know on the fence about installing them, that that may shove them in the direction of not getting installed. Tell me or tell them. That why they're wrong in thinking that they're a fire hazard. Well, if somebody's listened this far into the podcast and isn't part of the industry, I commend them for their fortitude. Um, but I would say that uh, that P the, the issue isn't so much is PV a fire hazard as much as if a fire occurs on a house that has a PV array, will PV uh, be as reliable as a roof in terms of its burn rate? That's the issue. So it's not to say that PV is causing the fires. It's more a function of saying, when a fire happens, how might the PV system influence that fire? And that's why the regulations are being put in place to, to help minimize the effect, the, the negative effect um, that the right. PV array is going to have on if, you, if your house happens to catch fire. I, more, Frank, I think, oh, I think as well, I would say that, you know, any industry, you're always moving forward. You're always... Um, updating regulation to improve safety, improve uh, you know communication and and um, information that's available. So I don't think anybody's advocating that people go back and rip stuff off their roof that they have. But it's still important to continually um, work as an industry on making things better. And this is one of those um, initiatives, I think, overall. Well, this is a debate that is going to continue, certainly um, after January 1st. 
Well, I, I have one more question. Sorry, I just thought of one more question I want to ask, and then then we'll go to the wrap up. Do you see the regulate? I mean, California tends to be a leading state when it comes to solar regulations. Once these are implemented, implemented January first, do you see them spreading to other states? Well, it is. A, it depends on how the state building codes respond to the change in the International Building Code and International Residential Code. California was very specific about how to interpret the the changes to the IBC and IRC, and that's how they wrote their guidelines that state that you must have a system that's classified to the UL seventeen oh three. So they were much more specific. The building code just says you now must have. Uh, a PV fire rating for the system that matches the roof, and the International Residential Code had similar kind of language. So I do believe you will see, especially where wildfire is a problem, including my home state of Arizona, that this will be addressed. How soon? I'm not certain yet, but I will be contacting our local fire officials here in Arizona to better understand how they're approaching this. So stay tuned for how this might affect other states. And, and one thing that I feel is very important for Mark to address is the whole top concept of uh, module typing. But IBC 2012, is there's a specific schedule of when states are adopting that. Each state is going, has their own acceptance schedule, and that actually can be ac- accessed online, a listing of that. Um, and then once it's once like say a state like Illinois says we're you know we're now following IBC 2012, then it's up to how the nuances of how they interpret it, how they then react, and what they're going to mandate. Because one important thing is California has by far the majority of Class A and Class B roofs. The rest of the country is primarily Class C, and you know. Theoretically, it's, you should be able, you should still have a system that's rated to Class C, but there's just not as much um, discussion about Class C as there is about Class A. So the states, as they adopt it, may you know may adopt um, methods that deal with with the fire classification that may downplay the need for you know. Um, cl- Listed systems, I guess. Yeah, I got you. Caution people in Arizona and Colorado, in particular, which are two very active solar states, to be aware of this. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Mark, uh, to follow up, you said that you can access the schedule of implementation of the of the new codes. Yeah. Where would people find that? It's on Solar Power World, actually. Yeah, take a look at the article that Tolleran wrote. Uh, there is the complete adoption list. I think there is not mine. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. That's where it is. I mean, yeah, it's a. I don't it's know where plug, guys. The original I original no, I, I, I don't know where the original comes from, but it was actually put into that article. Um, that's that. Um, Dave wrote. Dave wrote. Yeah. yeah perfect. Well, guys, this is obviously a debate that that is going to continue. Um, that's going to continue, and uh, would you guys be willing to come back after January 1st, maybe in March or so, and have a discussion about how the implementation's gone and some of the, the positives and some of the, perhaps some of the struggles that are going on as a result? Definitely. I would be up for it. Perfect. Well, I'd like to well, thank Frank, Frank. Let's uh, let's see if we can have Mark address uh, module typing because this is probably one of the most important elements of the new fire classification. It's really something the listener should be aware of. Perfect. Okay, you better summarize that. So one one 
aspect that was implemented in 1703, well, the, all the fire classification testing, which was very important improvement, was the ability to not not have to test every individual combination of module types, mod, I mean, module brands and racking systems. So what it allows is a racking system to, to be in compliance with a by testing a type. So module makers, module manufacturers will now do their own testing on their component and, and receive a type. And there's 15 of those types. So then now a, a mounting system company can then get be in compliance with whatever they desire to be and get that with certain types of modules, specific types. So type 1 or type 2 like we have. Um, and then now any module that has those types, we can we can build with their system. It would be in compliance. So it really has taken a big step in reducing the amount of testing that would be required to get all the systems in compliance. Um, so it was a, you know a big improvement in in how they how these rules were deployed within the standard, and it actually can have far-reaching um, points to it. In the future, other aspects of, of the standards for testing modules and mounting systems may also, other aspects, say strength and um, electric um, behavior, may be able to use types to reduce te- the amount of testing done. So that's you know something that's that's being looked at on all aspects from all aspects of the industry as well. So in, as, as an example, Ironbridge has just uh, completed their class A fire rating of their racking system, they've used type 1 modules because they realize the majority, a considerable majority of their customers use type 1 modules. So you can use any type 1 module with Iron Ridge's class A fire rated system and retain that rating. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Uh, how soon do you think that the other, how soon do you think those that specking of the, of the modules is going to, to be, or is it already enforced? I mean, I think that's happening now. I think people are realize people, the um, the way this is being deployed in the field is that module manufacturers are focusing on just doing their own testing to get typed, and then the mounting systems like ours and Jeff's <clears throat> are doing the work to get it, to, to pass with specific types, like for Class A types one and two, for instance, like that that we are. So it's it's already out there. There's already um, it sounds like. A lot of the module manufacturers are focusing on just worrying about getting their their modules um, receiving a type, and then um, instead of worrying about being listed and passed with specific configurations. So, but there, but there are other companies that have tested with a specific make and model of PV module, and if you're using that company's ranking system, the only way to retain the fire rating is to use the module that they used in testing if they didn't use one of these fire-typed modules. Well, you know, guys, I, I really appreciate your taking time to talk to me. I think this is a, an issue that is going to continue um, to be discussed and debated, and we'll revisit this again next year uh, to sort of see how the implementation is actually going, see how the jurisdictions have reacted to the new mandates, and uh, maybe we'll get an installer involved in the conversation, too, to get some first-hand um, on-the-ground information about how it's affecting installers, if it's infecting, uh, affecting them at all. Um, this has been another edition of Solar Speaks. I'm your host, Frank Andorka. 
senior editor of Solar Power World magazine. Until next time.